did technology trigger the explosive growth of the radicalization movement in the United States? How does it compare to the rise of foreign terrorist threats and what can we do to prevent it? Hello everyone, I'm Chitra Raghavan and this is Techtopia. Joining me now to talk about it is Anne Speckhard, director of the International Center for the Study of Violent Extremism. She has interviewed hundreds of terrorists all over the world, consulted with the US and allied governments, and worked with social media platforms such as Facebook to create and disseminate counter-radicalization messaging against ISIS and other foreign terrorist groups. Anne, welcome to Techtopia. Uh, thank you, Chitra. I'm so glad to be here with you. As an expert on radicalization, uh, when you saw what was happening on January 6th, uh, both outside and inside the US Capitol, what were your first thoughts? My thoughts were um, what had been predicted was happening because I'm part of a number of groups that were um, monitoring and trying to diffuse violence from groups such as this um, before it happened. And to me, it had been predicted and I was watching it play out. And over the past months and years, what were some of the things that you were seeing? I know your focus has been predominantly of radicalization of foreign terrorist groups such as ISIS, but I'm assuming you probably were seeing similar things unfold here in the United States. Definitely. We were seeing um, groups forming on the internet or forming in real life as well. And what I would say we were really seeing is that online behavior and online threats were moving into real life, which is exactly what we saw with ISIS, that you know there was a huge amount of propaganda and incitement, and that we watched people get wrapped up in it. And some of them, uh, oftentimes they went dark because they would uh, transfer over to Telegram, and then you would see them do something. So what was happening and being observed on their Facebook or Twitter profile would later translate into real life behavior. But we should say that there were huge groups of people responding to ISIS's uh, online propaganda that never did anything. Interesting. So what, what do you think was the trigger? What happened? Well, I would definitely say that uh, President Trump incited this uh, mob and he had been inciting them all along with what pundits are now referring to as the big lie of telling them that the election was stolen and that um, they must stand up for democracy. And these are people, I mean, there are a whole array of people, they're not a monolith, but these are people that already believe that uh, white rights are being stolen, uh, they're disenfranchised, they're upset, and if they're a conspiracy theorist in QAnon, they believe that uh, Trump is going to stand up to evil powers of the world. And uh, having interviewed hundreds of foreign terrorists around the world, uh, often in some very hostile countries and conditions, you've seen the evolution of these young people, especially getting radicalized, but others as well. You know, What have been some of the things you've seen in that pattern of evolution that may apply in this case? Well, we're definitely seeing similarities in that as a person begins to align themselves and find their identity with a group, that they start to, to fuse their identity with the group and they narrow their focus. So they only consume materials from that group. 
So with the uh, far right or white supremacists, uh, QAnon, we're seeing that they no longer believe real news and that they're, they're in their own reality that is fed to them, I, I'm sorry to say, in some cases by the president himself and also from news sources that are in agreement with this type of thinking that the election was stolen, that uh, it was justifiable to move to violence or that, you know, in the case of QAnon, that there's this um, horrible conspiracy and that only Trump can save the people. And I, I saw an interesting quote today in the Washington Post from Representative Jim Hines, a Democrat from Connecticut. And he said in, an, in the interview that the threats are real, but will not stop the transfer of power. And then he said, we're not talking about a 90 person ISIS cell we're talking mainly about a bunch of yahoos who, yes, are very dangerous. People could wind up dead, but there's no danger that they're going to overthrow the United States government. Uh, the, the comparison that these are not like the, a 90 person ISIS cell and they're a bunch of yahoos, given what you've seen with the radicalization of ISIS and what you saw the other day, would you, would you agree with that or would you, would you parse it in some way? I would definitely parse that. And um, first of all, I would say ISIS doesn't have any hope of overthrowing the U.S. government either. And one of the reasons that they use suicide terrorism is that they're no match for our military and our might. And so these people are no different. I mean, there were pipe bombs. Uh, they brought a gallows. They brought uh, uh, the plastic strips to tie people's uh, wrists. And they were uh, there's a policeman today that's being reported out in the media that said uh, they were grabbing at his gun saying, let's kill him with his own gun. These were people that, not all of them, there's some that were swept up in a mob mentality, but these are people that thoughtfully considered what they wanted to do and what they thought they needed to do. I mean, they refer, some of them refer to themselves as three percenters, meaning that only 3% fought in the revolution against the British and that now they are these uh, glorious people that are going to create a revolution and you know make sure that democracy actually happens. And I talked to one yesterday. I've been interviewing people in the far right. I talked to Jason Kessler, who ran Unite the Right. And Jason was telling me, these people are really tired because they feel that they don't have representation, that the people that have been elected are uh, beholden to special interest groups and that they need to go and fight for what the founding fathers actually uh, wrote on paper and tried to make the foundation of this country that it's been lost. And in, to some degree, there is some reality in that, that a lot of our congressmen uh, are more beholden to special interests than to the people that elected them to get there. The other interesting thing is how uh, some some members of these groups were perceiving themselves. I saw a really interesting moment on CNN where the reporter was doing a live interview and saying, you know, these rioters, these rioters were doing this. And there was a, a gentleman who, who was not rioting, who interrupted the live interview and said, we are not rioters, we're not rioting. And so it just seemed really an odd moment where someone who is part of this you know, a violent incursion on the Capitol says, look, we're not rioting. And that's maybe go to some of what you're saying of how they perceive themselves. Well, that's what I keep finding in all the far right interviews 
that I've made up to this point, talking to white supremacists and so on, is that they believe that they're heroic, that they're doing something uh, good and right, uh, that they're standing up for their people. And um, the difference that I find between them and a group like ISIS, and I'm not justifying ISIS in any way, but at least people that join a group like ISIS, most of them have become convinced that ISIS is um, carrying out Islam in the correct way and that they must do the same and that anybody can join Islam. It, it doesn't matter what color you are, or what country you came from. But these people, um, if they're white supremacists, believe that they have to fight for their rights, for their group, and everybody else be damned. And that's uh, frightening, but they definitely have uh, self-reference as idealistic, um, heroic, in the right, righteous. And um, I, of course, think that they're totally wrong, but that's not how they feel about themselves. You've uh, delved deeply into the role of social media and technology in the recruiting efforts of ISIS and other uh, radical foreign terrorist threats. What are some of the things you've seen and their evolution of the use of technology to promote all of their own propaganda? And how does it compare to what you're seeing with uh, right-wing conspiracy groups? Well, it's really interesting, Chitra, because all the main social media platforms came into agreement to kick ISIS and other insiders of violence and terrorist groups off of their platforms. And they haven't been completely successful in doing it. Uh, they have something called hashing where they, you know, a picture from ISIS or a film from ISIS will be recognized by machines and just immediately kicked off. But still, they managed to get on these mainline platforms where most of the people are and attract them into encrypted platforms, mainly Telegram in the case of ISIS. And now we're seeing the same thing with the uh, QAnon and white supremacists that they're being deplatformed and even Trump himself being kicked off of Twitter and Facebook. And we saw a mass exodus to Parler and then Parler getting kicked off of Amazon. And we're seeing the same thing that happened with ISIS that all of these people still want to talk to each other and they want a safe place to gather and to make their um, plans. So many of them have gone to Signal and to Telegram. So we're seeing the exact same thing happening again, where this is a nightmare for law enforcement because when they were on Facebook, they could be watching them. And of course, they're not going to discuss everything on Facebook, but it's much easier and you can pretty much track the identity in an easier way than if they're on Telegram or Signal. But the troubling thing now is that half our country voted for Trump, half our country is offended by this uh, huge deplatforming. And what does that mean? Are we pushing people that wouldn't be extremists to more extreme uh, positions? I don't know. And that worries me. And it worries me that now we're making it so difficult to follow these people. I mean, law, law enforcement will figure it out, but it's uh, difficult for them. And, and how would you 
describe uh, the efforts and success of law enforcement and intelligence agencies to date to track these groups and to prevent attacks given what happened on January 6th. The absolute stunning failure, not maybe not of intelligence since they seem to know a lot of these groups and individuals, but failure to convert that into execution. What? Where's the gap? Well, I think more and more FBI and other analysts, but you know, when you think of a small police force in a small community, they just don't have the capacity to do what FBI does. But there's data analysts that are scraping data now and following social media platforms. I remember when ISIS was in its heyday, FBI and others would come up to me at conferences and say, you know, I really can't tell you about my work because it's classified, but I'm following this one particular person. And at what point do you think that I can make a judgment that they're really dangerous? (laughs) And what a difficult question to answer, you know, because people flip from endorsing violence and uh, following these groups and being very um, strong adherents of them to suddenly moving into violence. And, you know, and when they do decide to be violent in our country, if they go buy a gun, they can be violent the next day, the same day. And that's a nightmare for law enforcement. But I also have to say they really missed it on this one because I was part of groups where we were all discussing that the groups themselves, the Proud Boys, other groups had been discussing violence and discussing that they were gonna come to the Capitol. So there was a failure of law enforcement to be ready. And I worry that part of that might not be a tech failure, it might be a bias failure, that even though our DC police force is black, I mean, not totally black, but a lot of black people, I think all of us have a bias that because of TV shows and movies that we watch that Black people are more likely to be criminals, Arabs are more likely to be terrorists, but white men should be safe, right? According to pop culture. And I think that bias crept in and they didn't prepare themselves for that these people too can be horribly violent and act exactly like ISIS. I mean. There was a gallows and there were people talking about hanging our elected legislators. Going back to this question of of, uh, technology, there seems to be like this growing sophistication from, you know, as one uh, reporter put it, you know, using the phone for selfies to actually generating live stream events of these attacks. You saw a lot of these leaders walking around live streaming as they were moving around the Capitol and and doing the crazy things that they were doing and violent things that they were doing. Do you have some sort of comparison to how that evolved with ISIS, that sort of that growing sophistication? And, and were you surprised by what you saw? One of the things that we learned with ISIS is that journalists were no longer necessary. So it used to be that a terrorist group, I I mean, I remember when they took over Nordost in Moscow, the theater, and uh, held all those hostages, they had prepared a tape and they had to get it to Al Jazeera so it could be aired. And then after Al Jazeera aired it, it was replayed on all the networks, you know, what was happening inside the theater and what the demands of the hostage takers were. And that's old time, the way it used to be. Uh, Osama bin Laden used to have to you know, get his uh, whatever he wanted out through a journalist, um, Basayev, the same thing. But not anymore. Now with social media, 
ISIS and all the terrorist groups learned that they can create their own content and put it out on the internet. Same as Trump learned that, you know, he doesn't have to deal with journalists. He can just tweet and, until this week. And so that's a real change that came with tech. And um, there's, and then the live streaming, for me, I asked myself, I read up on mob psychology this weekend because I was so interested in what social psychology has to say about mobs. And I know that there's this whole theory that people de-individuate, they fuse with a collective consciousness of the group. And uh, especially if they cover their faces and they're anonymous, they may be uh, much more likely to engage in violence. And I wondered, was this a phenomena where they got swept away? But there's a competing theory that like-minded people come together in crowds and mobs and that they have the intention of doing the things that they do. And I think it's a bit of both happened in this crowd. But the fact that they did take pictures, that they did brag to journalists, that they did post their videos even on YouTube shows me that they had a temporary criminal insanity in a way that they thought that they were so right and that they they acted with impunity, that they could uh, do criminal things that they knew were wrong and show them to the world. Yes, and publicize them, in, even though in, in a weird way, technology then helped because people could identify them, you know, either directly from friends and family and neighbors or through facial recognition technology. Right. And that's the other side of this. Um, I was reading today about how when citizens decide to try to track and figure out who these people are, if you're handing it into law enforcement, good. But if you're putting it up on social media, there are really good examples of where that's gone wrong. And innocent people have been identified as criminals by other citizens and it takes on a whole life of its own. So when the Boston bombing happened, uh, there was a young man with mental illness issues that was um, ident wrongly identified as the Boston bomber. And of course he suffered even more then. Uh, he, had, he, he was probably in a fugue state and had disappeared temporarily. And so he was suspected by someone that put it on social media. And there's all kinds of examples of that. So we have to be very careful on how we hunt people down too. And, that we let law enforcement do their job. And if, if we're engaging in that hunting, that then we give it to someone that can actually verify it before posting it yourself. One of the things I really wanted to talk to you about was the role of women in this Capitol Hill riots. There seemed to be a large number of women who were not only taking part, but in some cases directing uh, where uh, some of these uh, people that were breaking in should go. And and as you know, and they were also breaking in and one of them actually got shot and killed by a police officer. Did that sort of resonate with you in any way to see these very angry women <laughs> leading the charge in some ways? That brings up a number of issues. One is that there's this very famous book on terrorism that is called Shoot the Women First. And it was written about anarchists and leftist uh, terrorists in Europe saying that the women are the most dangerous. And um, we haven't found that as true with ISIS and Al Qaeda because they um, tended to only use women 
when they had to, when they couldn't get them across checkpoints or when they were really hemmed in. But women playing a role in this is interesting, of course, because women sometimes have the exact same motivations as men and other times they have very different motivations. And I've been trying to wrap my head around why someone would respond to the QAnon conspiracy. And one of the answers that comes to me is that if you really look at the statistics of how many people are sexually abused in this country and how, how many women are raped, I mean, a conservative estimate is one out of 10, one out of five might be more likely. And in the case of child sexual abuse, usually the abuser tells you if you tell anybody, and sometimes in the case of rape as well, if you tell anybody, um, they'll die or uh, I'll kill your mother or you know something. So there's this whole hidden layer inside of many people that they're walking around with big pain, but they can never tell anybody. And then suddenly we have this conspiracy of children are being sexually abused and uh, the authority figures are involved. And you know, doesn't that sound like uncle molester? So I'm thinking men and women um, probably respond to QAnon, possibly because they themselves were hurt and they want to make sure that there's not more victims like themselves. And you know, if, if you relate to the victimhood of someone else, particularly a child, um, you can be quite lethal. I mean, I think that is probably the only circumstances where you could see me kill. If, if you tried to hurt my children. How would you summarize the role of tech companies in trying to combat the stuff that's on their platforms? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, well, we've been working for a long time and we've been in partnership with Facebook and uh, Instagram as well on making counter narratives. And we're a big believer that if you get insiders from a group to talk about why they went into the group um, so that there's this instant rapport of other people that are thinking about going in or already in, and then how the group actually was for them and uh, how they left and denouncing the group, that that's very, very powerful because we learn by story. So if we put a story that a person that's thinking about joining or in the group can relate to and can help them to get out, that's fantastic. And that can be done on social media. And we've proven that with our Breaking the ISIS brand counter narrative project. And now we're replicating it for the far right. So we've got a couple of videos. We've got 225 ISIS videos, but we only have two or three far right at this point, but we're working on getting more made. And social media companies need to help get a narrative that's strong out there, both a counter narrative to denounce the, the groups and an alternative narrative to empower people to do something so they don't feel powerless. And that means creating a, a parallel network. And here I'm quoting Jesse Morton, who's a big advocate of parallel networks, so that you can leave the network that you think was gonna serve you and doesn't serve you and is in fact violent and go into an alternative parallel network that actually does serve you. And social media companies can be really instrumental in that. The other side of that is 
while we do need takedown policies and we do need to stop people from inciting violence on social media, we also can be really strict about what is taken down um, and all terrorist content for sure should be taken down. But when you get into these gray areas, maybe consider doing interventions with the people, you know, having actual interventionists that reach out to the person and say, you know, you're getting in this gray area where we're going to kick you off the platform, but could we talk to you? And, you know, you might see great results. We're, we're talking to doing something exactly like that with minds.com and it would be a little bit different um, approach than just totally deplatforming people. Um, it's kind of interesting when you talked about parallel networks, because one of the, the things I want to explore in, in Tectopia and why I called it Tectopia is this idea that technology has created a parallel universe, you know, almost with different rules of engagement, different measures of success, uh, different ways of uh, governing. And, you know, you're kind of seeing that emerge, even with this, these groups that that rioted on, on January 6th and living in a parallel universe almost. And, and that's why they were able to go out there and do live streaming of their violence, thinking it wasn't going to amount to anything. Well, I think they were thinking that it would amount to something, but not to their arrest. I meant in terms of retaliation. Oh, yeah, not, I meant yeah, not of- to their arrest. And um, exactly. I mean, we have now probably two generations that have grown up really tech savvy. And they know how to switch from platform to platform. They know how to get their messages out. Um, They're influencers. And um, it is a parallel universe. And we need to get good at creating networks for good and networks that believe in our, or, or that promote our democratic values in a way that people can resonate to. Because ISIS and white supremacist groups have learned how to message in a way that resonates to people's grievances and then engages them and takes them down a trajectory that for some ultimately ends in enacting violence. And that's not good. President Trump will be gone from office by the time this this, this show airs, this episode airs, but obviously the that movement that he created, uh, you know, with his rhetoric and uh, hate speech will remain. What do you think law enforcement, intelligence agencies, uh, and, you know, other interested groups need to do in coming weeks and years. It seems like a very dark period ahead. Uh, And seeing what you saw with ISIS, where will these groups go from here after Trump is gone? Well, first of all, I don't think that Trump is going to be gone. Uh, I've heard talk that that he's uh, fundraising to create the Trump News Network. And uh, I think that's a misnomer. It won't be news. It will be propaganda. And, and when he's gone from office. Right, right. But, but I think that's something that we need to face, that this man is still going to be a force. And he's been very good at turning people against each other um, and ignoring the real issue of elites maybe have too much and uh, that there are these whole groups of disenfranchised people that we somehow need to consider their needs for healthcare, for housing, uh, you know, for basic uh, rights and needs. And so that's to me a real issue that I think is still gonna be fomenting 
for a strong social division and uh, possibly even violence. Etzel, how do you uh, how do you see that evolving? And and when you see uh, how the U.S. government uh, and other governments are dealing with foreign terrorist threats, what are the things we need to do here? Well, it always comes down to if there's no grievances, then there's not people that can be so easily manipulated. So we really need to look at what are the grievances and what are the legitimate ones and what should we do about them. And how can we build our society so that um, people want to be invested in it and believe in it? Because I think there really is some truth in the idea that a lot of the people came to the Capitol thinking democracy is not functioning for me. And that is the most important thing that we can address in this country. And going back to your uh, you, what you said about you know Trump may be gone from office, but obviously he's going to be a force uh, uh, in politics and in sort of continuing uh, efforts to uh, foment unrest. You know, I, I saw the political cover of its magazine that said you know he might even be even more powerful because people will see him as somebody who's been attacked you know unfairly, and so that is another thing that we that will have to be dealt with. That's probably true. I mean, if if we see QAnon possibly tapping into people's sense of victimhood, and uh, then Trump will be able to do the same. Look, I was unfairly victimized. And he's done that very effectively in the past. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, one quick question, which is you're seeing uh, these uh, comments by law enforcement and the videos that show that some, at least some in the military and in the police may have been involved in this. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? It's very worrisome. And uh, white supremacist groups forever have tried to recruit people from the military because they're disciplined and because they um, have already have weapons uh, training. And they've also encouraged their members to take weapons training or go into the military. And uh, same with police. So it's very worrisome that we've seen, uh, there were two officers um, from a small town in Virginia that were taken off of duty because they were in the Capitol. And we've seen other examples where police and military have been involved in these type of things. And we need to develop good policies and good prevention and intervention strategies so that that doesn't happen. Uh, police generally vet before they hire, say, look, you know, what's your record? Are you a member of any of these extremist groups? But they really need to be looking ongoing because, you know, people aren't always the same as the day you hired them. And one of the markers of the evolution of Al-Qaeda and, and then subsequently other groups like ISIS was that they were putting that effort and money into military training for their soldiers, as they called them. Definitely. But I think in this case, it's, it's turned around that white supremacist groups like to attract military because they are already armed trained. Um, so you know, they go after vets. Um, we've got on our um, ICSVE YouTube channel, uh, a wonderful video of Ryan Lowry. And Ryan tells about uh, getting home from Iraq and that he's, you know, was a pretty tough tour and he couldn't get a job 
uh, left the military, couldn't get a job. He's in, uh, I think, Flint, Michigan. And uh, his uncle took him to a white supremacist um, group meeting. And the leader immediately recognized, here's a talented guy, I can use him and flattered him and uh, played up to him and pulled him into the group. And Ryan's talking about his time in the group and how he realized how wrong it was and, and warning other people not to join. But, you know, there's a perfect example, a disillusioned vet, you know, definitely capable of doing some real harm because he's been trained and he's been on the battleground, sucked into a group that's uh, both criminal and violent. And thank you so much. Do you have any other closing thoughts? Uh, no, thank you. It's really nice talking with you. Yeah, great having you here on the on the podcast. Anne Speckhardt is director of the International Center for the Study of Violent Extremism. She has interviewed hundreds of terrorists all over the world and has provided expert consultation to the U.S., European, and other governments, as well as the U.S. Department of Defense, regarding programs for prevention and rehabilitation of individuals committed to political violence and militant jihad. Speckhard has worked extensively with social media platforms such as Facebook to create and disseminate counter-radicalization messaging against ISIS and other foreign terrorist groups. This is Techtopia. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Techtopia is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of Techtopia. I'll see you then.